Thank you, Steve, very much. On behalf of all the speakers, thank you for including us. Thank you for inviting us. It's a great joy to be with you. And we all want to thank our gracious host, Pastor Steve. Where did you go, Steve? There you are. Steve. You could not have done more to make us feel comfortable and welcomed and thought about, and we thank you for all your labors for us. Now, the Lord is at work in our time, and we are involved. At this conference, he has spoken. He is doing a new work in Canada. Now, at the end of our time together, it's appropriate to ask, what's next? The Lord has spoken. What now? What could be different now? What could be better? What needs to change? What doors is the Lord himself opening up to a better future? I think at a moment like that, it's always wise to go back to the simple basics. So let me ask you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 13. John, chapter 13. Verses 34 and 35. The question is, what is the impact of a culture of grace called a church? What is the impact of a gospel culture? Verses 34 and 35, John chapter 13. The Lord said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another this is God's word so what is the impact of a gospel culture in this angry trigger happy world we live in a church beautified by the grace of Christ will compel people's attention. There is nothing like this. A Christian church is not a new community. It is a new kind of community in your city, in your town. And the Lord thought through what would be the best strategy for growing his kingdom, gathering more people in until his second coming. He thought it through. He cared about that deeply. He prayed about it in John chapter 17. So let's think about it. Now, 
You know the context here in John's Gospel. Jesus is about to return to heaven. What should his disciples do now with all that emotion when he leaves? The Lord tells them what to do with it. They are now to love one another. Now, we should love everyone, of course. It's a great privilege. But Jesus makes love for one another the mark of his true disciples because the church is how he advertises heaven on earth. As so many people have rightly said, I don't know who came up with this first, but the church is the model home for the new neighborhood God is building for eternity, and he wants everyone to see in, in time in history, he wants them to be able to see the future now so that they can buy in while they still can. So a loving church in an angry and tense world, that is the future, that is the glory only God can create, and he makes that future visible right now in your church and in mine. That's why this matters. Something is at stake in your church and in mine. The credibility of the gospel, the glory of Jesus, this little oasis of shalom in a bitter world. Now, the best outline I've ever, I've ever heard for preaching from this passage is my dad's outline. I'm not going to use it tonight. <laughs> I'm going to use an inferior outline tonight. But my dad's outline is so great because I've heard him preach this. He just preached it magnificently, but his outline is just embedded in the text. The command of Christ, the example of Christ, the promise of Christ. It's right there. But I'm going to use another outline. <laughs> my first point is why this matters. Secondly, what this means, and thirdly, how we can live this way. Why this matters, what this means, how we can live this way. First of all, why this matters. Do you see what the Lord is... In these verses, the Lord is giving a right to the watching world. He is handing over to the unbelieving world a right to judge whether or not we are Christians. The one who helped me to see this was Francis Schaeffer in his wonderful book, The Mark of the Christian. In these verses, the Lord is authorizing the unbelieving world to make a decision about us, to assess us, to judge the authenticity of our Christianity. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, if we are unloving, if we are cold, critical, fault-finding, sharp-tongued, narrow in our hearts, just aloof, too good for other Christians. Jesus is not saying that we are not Christians, but he is saying that no one will know that we are Christians. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has the right to do it, authorizes unbelievers to judge unloving Christians as non-Christians 
whatever those Christians might be thinking of themselves. There's so many ways people will not know that we belong to Christ. For example, sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, It's possible to give up our very bodies to be burned without love. Neither will people know that we are in Christ because we're right. (laughs) The Pharisees never had to back up and change their minds. They were always right. Neither will people know that we're in Christ because we know a lot. The Bible says knowledge puffs up. There are so many ways people will not know that we really are in Christ, that Jesus has come to town. But there is this one way that the Lord himself has chosen for us. We didn't hire some brilliant marketing firm to come up with this. This is not our own brainstorm. This is not our strategy. This is, this is from above. And you don't have to belong to a certain denomination to do this. You don't have to have a certain size budget in your church to be able to accomplish this. You don't have to have a certain style of worship. You can be who you are, where you are, fully empowered with total credibility that Jesus Christ lives in you and has come to town through your church. The Lord himself told us how that we would love one another as he loved us. Love for one another. That's our credibility as his people in this world. How we treat one another. How we speak of one another how we speak to one another, how we stick up for each other, how we rejoice over other people's successes, how we grieve over other people's setbacks, how we make things right again when they've gone off the rails and so forth. And and, uh, gospel living really amounts to basically three commitments, it seems to me. It just seems so obvious, biblical biblical, and, and biblical. Jesus, community, mission. That's, how, that's the language we use at Emmanuel Church. In that order of priority, first Jesus, of course, all the life that we need for community and mission pours out of the risen Christ. Jesus, then community, then mission, in that order. Many Christians are clearly committed to Jesus, clearly committed to mission, to ministry, to the tasks to expanding the gospel and so forth. But if they leapfrog over community and the Lord's new commandment about a beautiful, overflowing, loving community, if they tell themselves they have a witness because they love the Lord and they love His cause, but if at the same time they're not clearly loving one another, then they shouldn't be surprised if they aren't more attractive and convincing for Christ. The Lord himself has defined how we gain credibility in the eyes of a skeptical world. Everyone out there is wondering, how on earth are we going to get along? That's a good question. And the definite article, answer, is among the people of God. It's by the quality of our community. A church 
that looks like the love of Jesus is the final apologetic. A loving community. Let's, yes, let's think through careful, reasonable, accessible answers to the common objections to the gospel in our time in history. But a loving community is an argument. It's the best argument. Not the only one, but the best one. Because nobody else can do this in a sustainable, beautiful way. This is of God. The Lord himself established this strategy. And that's why it matters. We didn't come up with this. This is authorized by Christ himself. Secondly, what it means. Jesus calls this a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you. What's new about it? Well, in the Old Testament, of course, God said, love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19. And Jesus, we know from Mark chapter 12, Jesus revered that, that uh, old commandment. But Jesus himself showed us a love we'd never seen before. He showed us himself. He came down from his glory he entered into our meager existence. He lived among us as one of us with no personal advantages. I mentioned in one of our breakout sessions, Jesus never performed, as far as we know, never performed a miracle for himself, for his own benefit, to his own advantage. It was always for other people. He, I'm, I have to believe there were times when the Lord worked late into the night and got up early for work the next morning and didn't just bounce out of bed. He felt rotten. But he so disciplined himself living as one of us, he didn't get up and say, breakfast, appear. <laughs> he got up and made it the way you and I do. Here is this completely egoless nobody pouring himself out healing us, teaching us, caring for us, putting up with us, loving us. So his new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Love your neighbors yourself is a high standard. Love one another as I have loved you takes it to a new level. That's what's new. And it, isn't it fascinating that Jesus here represents himself, offers himself, as the world's greatest expert on love and the world's foremost example of love, and he does so without embarrassment, without apology. I wonder if that troubles you. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's an audacious thing to say. He orders us to do something. He makes himself the standard and he does it with complete confidence. Now, either Jesus is an amazing egomaniac or he really is the world's greatest expert on love. And if anyone isn't sure which of those two Jesus is, you can ask yourself this. If everyone on the face of the earth loved you right now as Jesus loved, and if you loved everyone on the face of the earth as Jesus loved, would you be complaining about all the ego going around or would it feel like heaven on earth? 
Jesus is the expert on how to be, this is so counterintuitive to me, an egoless nobody who is just for the others. He says here, just as I have loved you, how did he love us? Above all else, he died for us. You know, I, 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 I look at these words on the page, I think the Lord is saying, be ready, cheerfully, to die for one another. Now, only he can orchestrate the circumstances in which such a thing would happen. But I think the Lord is saying in your heart, I just want you to be ready for that. I want you to be okay with that. I want you, if, 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 I, if the events of your life funnel you down to that kind of defining moment, I want you to be ready. And I want you to think of it now as the, most, as the supremely glorious moment of your existence. not something to be avoided. The Bible says, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The Bible says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That is not easy. None of us would say this is easy or light on some trivial thing. This takes us down to the roots of our deepest feelings and emotions and motivations. But death to self, we know death to self is the breakthrough to life. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Two weeks ago, Janie and I were in Scotland walking through a wheat field with a friend, William McKenzie. He pulled out several stalks of wheat out of the ground and there was a sort of a clump of dirt at the end of it. And he quoted that verse and he said, do you see the seed there that gave birth to this, these stalks of wheat? We said, no. He said, yeah, that's right. Can't see it anymore. It's, it's invisible. It's been lost but it's still bearing fruit. Jesus chose not to stay safe and aloof and remain alone, isolated, pain-free. He loved. He gave himself away and suffered for it in this world Love always suffers. And in that way, we are actually escorted into the sacred privilege of experiencing the very meaning of the universe. Sacrificial love for others. It's why God created the universe. It's not plan B. It wasn't an accident. He had to somehow figure out once things were in motion. This is why we're here to receive, to adore, and be remade by dying love. 
It's the greatest power in the universe. The willing, unforced, non-self-pitying sufferings of love are the only creative force for good in all this world. Everything else is bluff at best. And Jesus is calling us to be living proof in our time of who He is and what He's done and the beauty His love creates. That's what it means. As Brent was saying this afternoon, why not here? Why not now? Thirdly, how to live this way. Um, I'll just make this brief, a couple of practical suggestions. One, the Bible says, therefore, this is one of my favorite verses, Romans 15, 7, it's gospel doctrine, gospel culture in one verse. Therefore, welcome one another, there's the gospel culture, just as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God, there's the gospel doctrine. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. And that word translated welcome, proslambano, means to take to oneself, to receive. It's the opposite of distance. Jesus pressed us into his heart. He welcomed us close to himself. Every day we offend him a thousand times. He just keeps pressing us in. This word is used over in Acts chapter 28 when Paul and his friends are shipwrecked on Malta and uh, the text says the native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain. It was cold. <laughs> you can just see it in your mind's eye. There they are on the beach, you know, planks from the ship up in the surf and everything's a mess and, and then it starts to rain on top of everything else. Everybody's freezing and, and somebody says, hey, let's, let's get a fire going for these folks. It's cold out here. Here's some blankets for you guys. You need a cup of coffee? Come on, let's all huddle around this fire and get warm together. Well, that's what the Lord did. Come on in out of the cold. This, this is miserable. Come on, come here. Let me wrap this blanket around you. Come in, let me put my arm around your shoulder and let's just get cozy together. That came down from above. That moved our way. We, had, we didn't have a category for that. And now the Lord says, okay, create a welcoming environment in your heart and in your church. Of course, one of the reasons why we might not do that or fall short of it is sometimes... We disappoint each other. We do. We don't mean to. We don't want to. We just do. We let each other down. We're just not able to be as loving and as lovable as we'd really like to be. There's only one person in the universe who always puts out 110% for his friends, and that's Jesus. And sometimes 
in our disappointments, our misfires with each other, we stop welcoming, we start keeping score, eventually we start accusing, the mental list of grievances silently grows until it reaches a point of explosion. And when all of that anger is pouring out of us at one another, and we're blasting each other in strife, the presence of Jesus departs. He will not dwell in the midst of contention. He will happily dwell in the midst of confession. The Bible says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We shouldn't confess one another's sins. I need to confess my sins. You need to confess yours. And then pray for one another. As friends and fellow sufferers, I remember Martin Luther in his wonderful uh, lectures on Romans in his section on chapter 14. He says, you know what life is like? My paraphrase of Luther here. He says, life is like slogging through a swamp. This is not easy. And you know what, guys? He said, if we turn on each other in the middle of this swamp, we might die out here. But if we stick together, we'll probably get through it. Martin Luther, Romans 14. Check it out. Where am I in my notes? <laughs> Real community. You know, you just, you just walk in on a Sunday morning and just, <laughs> you just feel welcomed. You feel wanted. And you, and you realize, this is not just a bunch of nice people. The Lord is here. Second practical suggestion, not only welcoming one another as sinners, but also rejoicing over one another. Rejoicing over one another. The Bible says Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus that to him made the cross worth it? He rejoiced to be our Savior. He rejoiced that He would have us with Him in His Father's house forever. He didn't look at the cross and then look at us and go, you are so not worth this. <laughs> he looked at the cross. He looked at us. And He rejoiced. And that's how he loved us. Not with self-pity, but with joy. Okay. Now we know how to love each other. There's a great, I love this. In um, Psalm 16, verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That verse is crazy. As for the saints in the land, which is just Old Testament code language for people in Christ, set apart to God, you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. And this is not hard to see. 
you get into a conversation with anybody in this room and just start asking questions. Like, so tell me your story. Where'd you grow up? How'd you meet the Lord? What do you do for a living? 30 seconds, 30 seconds into the conversation, you just start seeing the excellencies appear. It's just under the surface. It's not even hard to find. Y'all are amazing. The Lord is telling a glorious story in you. There's not a boring human being in this room. Jesus did not die to make you nice. He died to make you amazing. And he's doing it. As for the saints in the land, whoa. Look at them. They are the excellent ones. And then, that's an observation, then the psalmist makes a very significant personal emotional commitment that is borderline idolatrous in whom is all my delight. Now, I don't think he's excluding the Lord in saying all my delight. He is saying wholehearted delight. I'm not holding back one bit. I'm all in emotionally, personally. As for the saints in the land, you, you're amazing. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I'm all in. Me, personally, emotionally, relationally. Count me in on that. I want to be among you. Wow. You know, is there any reason why... uh, Who wouldn't want to go to a church like that? Pastors... Brothers, elders, let's go set that tone. And if we feel a little shy, I'm shy. I really am. I, um, Scotty and I were talking about this the other day. I'm, I'm very, uh, uh, I'm an introvert and I'm inhibited. And in the personality exams, there's this anomalous spike, socially bold, because I have to be, because I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, so I make myself behave as if I were not afraid and shy and awkward. And I say to myself, the the 13-year-old inside, I say, Ray, forget you. This is too important. This is glorious. You're going to have fun. You'll get used to it. Just jump in. So my brother pastors, my fellow introverts, you know, relationally backward pastors, that's who we are almost always. We love study, love to preach. Let's go love people ferociously this Sunday. For Jesus' sake and the power of the Holy Spirit. And if they wonder what has come over the pastor, good. (laughs) And let's never think, yeah, but the following Sunday, I won't be able to keep it up. So I'm just going to make myself look like a fool if I try. That thought is not of the Holy Spirit. 
You know, our dear people that come to our churches all week long, nobody's rejoicing over them. Their bosses aren't rejoicing over them. Their teachers. Sometimes not even their girlfriends and boyfriends. Oh, but their pastors. They've got to have somebody in their life that likes them. That rejoices over them. That's proud of them. That's cheering them on. They need somebody to love them the way Christ does. That's our privilege, pastors. <laughs> Boy, every pastor here right now is feeling two things. One, man, I'm not good at that. Number two, I really want that. I think the Lord will honor that latter desire. So let's just go for it, hurl ourselves into it. Okay, third, that was, um, was what I just said, was that okay? Jenny, was that okay what I just said? Do I need to apologize for what I just said? No? Third point. <laughs> Practical way. Ephesians 4.32, this is my favorite. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Again, it's just gospel doctrine, gospel culture in one verse. Now, I know this verse because every time my sisters and I fought when we were kids, my parents made us recite this verse from memory. So I said this verse hundreds of times. <laughs> of course, it was in the King James Version back in the 1950s. You know, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. All right, I said it. <laughs> but what a wonderful verse. The key word is kind, be kind. And I saw something in the Greek text a couple years ago I'd never seen before. That word translated kind, Christos, is also used in Matthew chapter 11 when the Lord says, my yoke is easy. It's translated in English kind in Ephesians 4 for contextual obvious reasons. It's translated easy in Matthew 11 for the same obvious reasons, but it's the same word. And that helps us understand how kindness thinks. The mentality of kindness asks, huh, Okay, this is an awkward situation, difficult moment. Hmm. All right, so how can I make this moment as easy as possible for my friend here? How can I, as much as possible, remove embarrassment, awkwardness, the feeling of being pressured on the spot, the feeling of being cornered, scrutinized, and judged, Love is kind. Love takes it easy on people. Love makes it as easy as possible, as easy as it can be. Whatever the moment is, we can be so hard on each other, can't we? Bearing down on each other. You know, the Lord never commanded us to be like that. He himself was not like that. He is so kind. He found a way of salvation 
as easy, grace is easy on us, not on him. He found a way of salvation that would make it as easy as it could possibly be for us, no matter what the cost to him. He is kind. Be kind. Take it easy. One to another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. This is the word of the Lord. That's what love looks like. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't, oh my. Dear friends, the world needs churches where people can just walk in and experience that. This is sacred. This is blood-bought. This is of the Holy Spirit. This is from above. Nothing in this world can create churches like that. But Jesus Christ, our friend and Savior, has made us that. Let's go embrace it for His glory in our time. And you know, we don't have to obey this perfectly, guys. We never will. But if we will just give our hearts to the Lord in this way, we have the Lord's promise here. People will know He's real, He's present, He's among us. And many of them will join us. All right, let me pray for you. Lord, we give this conference to you. We give ourselves to you. We consecrate it all now to you. We realize, oh Lord, every, every act of obedience, every moment of, of agreement and surrender is really a gift that you give. And oh, give that gift in abundance. Oh Lord, we ask you to bless every church represented here. Lord, Pour out upon us your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.